This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. What happens when the old British Empire meets the new world? Tom Keneally explores this notion in his latest novel, The Dickens Boy, where Edward, the 16-year-old son of Charles Dickens, arrives in Australia to begin a new life. So, Tom, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. Now, Edward was only 16 when he arrived in 1868. It seems quite a young age. Yes, with his other sons, Dickens, either the one going into the army, one who died in Calcutta after the Indian uprising, whether they went to jobs like that or else he tried them out doing the foreign office exam, for example, uh, uh, tried to um, uh, get them jobs around London. He did that for the elder of his two sons who came to Australia, Alfred Tennyson Dickens. Uh, Alfred um, arrived in 1865, but his father had tried an, a number of things with Alfred's, including uh, a job in a Tyner House, as they called them in London, and uh, that is an import house in, in London, but he hadn't done particularly well. Uh, the eldest son, Charles, uh, tried to um, work in China too for some time, and it was one of the banes of Dickens' life that his sons just couldn't, in his term, a very modern term, find a groove. It, it's my theory that Lorne was dyslexic. He had a lot of trouble ha- handling text. He was a good letter writer because the, the whole family knew how to write a letter. I mean, they've been receiving letters from Dickens himself, but I don't think uh, he had a capacity to handle big blocks of text when he was young. Dickens called him Plornish Marutni Guttner, which would seem to be affectionate and playful, yet Dickens then almost lost contact with him. There's very little communication between the two after he arrives. That's right. A few letters. One of the saddest is one written 20 days before Dickens himself had his fatal stroke at Gad's Hill House. And 20 days before that, he wrote to his other son, Alfred, who was uh, on a station north of what is now Broken Hill. And he uh, bemoans the fact that Lorne seems to be too content with being a a sort of gentleman drover uh, Mm. uh, with uh, a man named Fred Bonney on a huge property north of Wilcannia. And that letter was later published in the three-volume series, and basically it's there forever, Dickens saying that poor Plorne didn't apply himself adequately. I think he did. I think the boys were unlucky to come to the Western districts after the eyes had been picked even out of that. And I don't think that uh, Dickens or other English gentlemen who sent their sons to Australia understood quite exactly the impact of the rain patterns on Australian life. Dickens didn't try much with Plorn. Uh, he was an affectionate father, but in their adolescent years, he got a little bit more short-tempered with them. I think he was always a loving man. But the question that 
the two boys debate right throughout the book in various tones of love and chagrin is the question of, is he dumping us? Is he saying something by this or, or should we be here? You use Edward's experiences in this new land as a way of exploring a range of issues. So he's coming to a new country and the land, because it's not yet Australia, the land is like an open canvas. So you discuss things or expose things like a range of marriage and relationships here. And you come up with a lovely term, which I've only seen used in the grammatical sense before, solecism. An error in the wife was accounted an error in the husband. And this goes back to Charles's relationship with his own wife, Catherine, and the split that occurred there. Yes, that's the, the baggage that Lorne brings to Australia with him. The whole ambiguity that the family had for the rest of their lives after Dickens and his wife split up in uh, 1858. The baggage of that split they carry with them because Dickens would have rather preferred they didn't spend so much time with their mother. Uh, one of the daughters who was a fine artist, Katie, she says that Dickens discouraged them going to see their mother and she felt guilty after they were both gone that he'd prevented her going more than she wanted to. But he did let them go. He just one of those fellows who, um, when he makes a big decision in life, he wanted to argue it out almost in public and have society accept his version of the split and his version was that they had been criminally unsuited to each other. Uh, she'd borne him 10 kids, the youngest being born. So in the wilderness of the barrier ranges and uh, along the Darling, the two brothers um, fought out this issue uh, as we all fight out between siblings, the major contours. They knew they were the only two, the two boys in Australia, who could discuss Dickens' warts and all. But you're quite right. He's a very affectionate and playful father, uh, less so as they grew up, and certainly frustrated by looking at the vacancy, as he saw it, of their faces around the the table what you have also is a whole series of other relationships that you are able to explore there's maurice mcgarden who's looking after mrs fremel and that's platonic you've got edward bonnie who's one of the owners of momba station and his homosexuality you've got edward being used as a trophy by mrs wivenhoe and for that matter a more conventional relationship with Tom Larkin and his wife. So you do actually explore a range of relationships here. Yes, uh, the, the fundamental ideas about the Dickens story is it showed that Australia had gone from being a convict hell in the idea, in the minds of uh, Victorians, uh, to become a sort of a continental version of social welfare the deserving poor and the not so successful Englishmen. And so in uh, David Copperfield, you have 
Miss Macorber, a sort of would-be middle-class debtor who spends time in in prison for debt, coming to Australia, and he becomes a magistrate. It's almost as if Australia redeems him out of the air. But uh, you also have the working-class Peggotty family, the character Little Emily, who has been prostituted um, and yet is able to redeem herself by honest labor in Australia. This idea of Australia as the place to redeem the wastrel or the ineffective Britain is very strong in literature. You have in the importance of being earnest. You have Jack saying to Algernon, your uncle said at table last night that you must choose between this world, the next world and Australia. I've always wondered whether Dickens was compulsive obsessive in his approach to what he was doing. It does sound to me as if there were troubles with that. He found Alfred Tennyson Dickens when he was a boy brushing his coat in the dining room. He becomes obsessed with this and and beats him out of the house. And it makes a story for them to tell others later as a sort of, um, yes, the old man was very obsessed with neatness, but he was. He inspected the boys' bedrooms whenever he was home. He didn't want to see a book out of place. Books had to be returned to the library. He didn't want to see clothing out of place. He was a bit obsessed about packing cricket bags so that they were exactly packed. He was... um, First of all, uh, the son of a man in debtor's prison and a fairly habitual over-borrower. And then he was also the son uh, of a man who himself spent time in debtor's prison. And uh, he just didn't want to go back to that disorderly life. Therefore, he wanted a life that was extraordinarily controlled and measured. So I think you're right. Uh, that's certainly an impression I got, but I, I don't want to make him seem a monster because he is a very genial human being. Uh, but of course, from the split onwards, he's working so hard. He's got his uh, love of this young Irish actress, Nellie Turnan, with whom it seems he may have had a child. Whether it's true or not, it's kind of symbolically true because that's where his mind was, and uh, that's where his affections were. Here's another issue for you that you take up in the book, egalitarianism. So, for example, Edward's introduction to Tom Larkin, he did not take a step back as an English working man would have by now. So you've got people of all classes and orders working equally with each other. Yes, I'm very interested in the figure of Larkin, He's based on my wife's grandfather, who was a child of convicts, and his name was Tom Larkin. He's the sort of man who would have been encountered, child of convicts, and indeed convicts who'd done their time, were still around then very much. And therefore, he encounters a man who is relatively unabashed about the fact that his parents have been transported and have worked for the one master, still work for him now that they're free. And a man who knows the country 
and a man who, like many of us Australians do when we first go to Britain, if we encounter the upper crust Britons, uh, we don't understand what signals they're sending. And Tom thinks he's offended young Plorn by calling him Plorn. In fact, he misreads the signals about what he should call Plorn. He should, according to the uh, Anglo customs of the day, call him Sir or Mr. Dickens. Now, this instinctive egalitarianism, I don't know where it came from, from the landscape, from the demeanour of having to take people on their merits, not on their title, uh, only their merits being of any value in the bush. Wherever it came from, it's very much in the Australian soul now, but not quite as much as it was, I think, in my father's day. But it was a powerful ethos of, of, of equality. I'll give you another one here, Tom. Religion. You've got the Anglicans, those troublesome papists, but you also then have the indigenous spirituality. And all of these seem to merge in the text. Yes, I felt, you know, that the reason I wanted to write the book over any doubts I had was Horn's boss in reality and in the book. Uh, his boss was a man called Fred Bonney, who took beautiful pictures of the Parkinson people who lived on the station uh, because it was safe. Now, this wasn't ideal. It was a practical resolution for them. There were still groups of Aboriginals who wandered about as purists and wouldn't come into the station, uh, wouldn't take the protection that the station gave them. He uh, tried to keep mounted police out. If the Queensland mounted police turned up, he told them they were out of their jurisdiction. There had been a massacre by South Australian mounted police down to the south of his property in the 18, 1850s, I believe. So he was trying to keep violence off his land. And that's why his, the station was popular with the Parkinson people. And he took pictures of them. He started in the 1860s making his own chemical plates with his own camera device. And he's taken beautiful pictures of the Parkinson in that first generation of contact. While they're still handsome, before the problems of uh, health and uh, the, the bacteria and virus that we brought with, with us, uh, before they had impinged. And he wrote a lot about the Parkinson people in learned journals. And it's from his journals that I got the material. He also loved a little um, black and yellow uh, native finch, which he fed from grain in his pocket. So there are always these little finches around him. He had a lifetime affection for small birds and he'd hand out grain to them. So the um, Parkinson name for him was Little Birds. It shows then that it was possible for European and Indigenous to sort of communicate at least, but unfortunately you have massacres in there as well and all sorts of things. But moving on then, uh, we've touched on the psychology of Edward and Alfred, 
But what happens is that Charles dies and there's a reaction from the Australian nation and virtually Edward and Alfred have no option but to succumb to the national grieving and play a role in all of the ceremonial sending-offs that occur in Australia. And that is uh, tough for them because Lorne is not a public speaker. But um, the interesting thing about Dickens' death was because we didn't have the Overland Telegraph yet, it came to the bush ultimately as a rumour. I mean, the normal mail came from Cobar on a wagon and the wagon may or may not make it this time. It might be stuck by a stream and engorged stream for two or three weeks. In any case, the first news that comes to Australia is a rumour and it comes to the cities. They, you know, sources say that Dickens has died. But the definitive news arrives by newspapers on ships. And so it's very delayed. And even then, there are excuses for the boys to think, well, this is only a rumour still. And I won't believe it till I get letters from home. And then the letters from home come after some months. And it's all confirmed. So they have a long period of unknowing, of doubting, of uh, coming to terms with the possibility before they're landed with the irrefutable truth. And Lorne was, God bless him, an amiable fellow whom we'd all have liked, but he was not equipped for the scale of mourning that occurred when Dickens died. They must have felt very removed from their father at that stage because there's no question are we rejected by our father and by England or is it because he loved us that we're here? To round this off then the novel The Dickens Boy really only encompasses two or three years of Edward's life there is a whole history then to be told of what happened to Edward afterwards. I'll just give a hint. It had something to do with rabbits, amongst other things. Uh, but really, we, are, we have encapsulated a moment or get a brief glimpse into a moment of Edward's life. But I think the reader could be interested in researching a little further to find out then what actually happened to Edward after your story ends. I'm very tempted to write a second book at a much greater pace about their afterlife, uh, their, after their father life, because their father's inheritance gives them the means to begin to dream of becoming a, the Australian version of landed gentry. And there was a time when the Wilcannia Cricket Club boasted two sons of Dickens and one son of Anthony Trollope, Fred Trollope. And Plorn uh, becomes the member of parliament. And his parliamentary career is destroyed by the rise of the Labour Party through the founding of Broken Hill. And uh, a number of men are 
industrial heroes to the miners and to the shearers who were on strike in uh, 1891. And so in 1892, Plorn, who is not unsympathetic to these men, nonetheless, he's rejected as an old-time politician. And in those days, there was no parliamentary superannuation, and he has to survive by his wife's typing. His wife, whom we meet in this book, Connie Gassay, and she comes from a station that still exists called Natalie uh, near uh, Wilcannia. Uh, and the story of their relationship, of their slow erosion through lack of money, uh, of the pastoral dreams that Plorn had and how they were destroyed one after another. Tom, you shouldn't give too much away. We'll have to wait for that sequel to come out, but it should make for interesting reading in as much as it's not just the life of an individual, but an insight into the development of a country. So the novel is The Dickens Boy, the author, Tom Keneally, and it's a Penguin Random House release. So, Tom, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure, David. And now it's my turn. I'm going to quote two things the Carmel shoot said. Crime does pay, at least on the page, and writing is a lot safer than robbing a bank. So, Carmel Shute, how are you connected to crime and writing? Well, for my sins, I helped start Sisters in Crime back in 1991. And for the past 27 years now it is, we've offered the Scarlet Stiletto short story competition to unearth new talent. And this year, there's $10,460 up for grabs. It's pretty fantastic, isn't it? Because it comes from this wide variety of sponsors. It does. So we've got Swinburne University is our number one sponsor. Then we've got the Melbourne Athenaeum, which does, uh, this year is offering us $2,000 in prize money for the body in the library competition. And the only qualification for the story is that it has to have the words body in the library <laughs> in it. <laughs> and we've got Simon & Schuster, we've got booksellers, we've got individuals like Kerry Greenwood, who's a founding member of Sisters in Crime and creator of the magnificent Friday Fisher series. And can I just tell you, people may not know this, but she has a new book coming out this year in the Friday Fisher's Fisher series, <laughs> and it's called Death in Dalesford. The other thing that Sisters in Crime with their awards, they're offering awards to young writers also and a 19 to 25-year-old. And you've got to get cracking because the deadline's coming up on these, isn't it? The 31st of, of August. And the New Writers Award, which is being offered by Monash University, that's aimed at the 19 to 25-year-old age group and ideal for university students, many of whom are out there studying creative writing. Tara Moss, she was one of the recipients of this when she was only 24 years old and she's certainly gone on to do big things. She certainly has. So anybody who's interested, 
really has to get in before the closing date of 31st of August. And there's a small entry fee and a maximum length of 5,000 words. That's it. But you've got 500 members. So how do you connect them and keep them interested in what's happening at Sisters in Crime? Well, it's a bit different this year with the pandemic. Mm. So in some ways, it's done as a favour in that, in that previously we've mainly just held events in Melbourne. With the pandemic, we are recording all of our events and putting them up on our new YouTube channel. So that means that anywhere, one, anywhere in the world, enjoy our events. It's not just people in Melbourne who can come along to the Rising Sun most months on a Friday night. Yes, now you've got Murder Mondays. It's a really exciting initiative. So every Monday at six, we interview a crime author about the craft of crime writing. And last Monday, we had Sarah Paretsky, who actually founded Sisters in Crime back in 1986 and is the author of the fantastic series uh, featuring Vi Wachowski. So she's written 20 novels um, in that series and various other books as well. We've got a YouTube channel and other authors. Mostly we interview, you know, Australian authors, mm. but we've also interviewed Kathy Rikes and Val McDermott. Soon we've got Anne Cleves, who is behind the, you know, Shetland books and also the Vera books. You've got something special coming up called Watery Graves. That's our monthly event and we're having two authors speak to Robin Walton about... Some are accidental drownings, but others are the result of murder, which is often difficult to prove. It's fascinating. That's right. And one of the books, Megan Golden's new book, put out called The Night Swim. The issue is, did she jump or, would, or was she pushed? And was she, did she just drown or was she murdered? So it's, it's a ripper of a read. And I've been urging her to contact Reese Witherspoon and Anna Cole to get it made into a TV series with this split. They're so fantastic. Well, this is what Sisters in Crime is all about. It's very supportive and there's just so much happening. So people can just jump onto the website. That's right. And you'll see there there's reviews, there's blogs, there's author interviews, there's lots of news. You can, and you can click on to all of our the various Zoom events that we've had. And uh, just gone up on Friday was our last Zoom event called International Women of Mystery. Law Week, fantastic range of events. There's something for everybody. As I always say, crime is a broad church. Sorry. Not only crime <laughs> does pay, at least on the page, and writing is a lot safer than robbing a bank. Thank you very much, Carmel Shu. Total pleasure. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. I look more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.